David, don't you think it's time that we deal with America's unhealthy addiction to overprescribing? Well, John, I don't think, but we have a MacArthur Foundation Genius Award winner, Dr. Eric Coleman, who's here today to talk to us about deprescribing. As long as it's not you. Welcome to Care Talk, your weekly home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Hey, John, I'm tired of listening to you all the time, so we brought an actual certified genius onto the show. Who we got here, John? We have our old friend, Dr. Eric Coleman, who is the director of the Care Transitions Program, but in many ways uh, was the inspiration and founder of, of, of the art of Care Transitions. He's also a MacArthur Genius Award-winning geriatrician. I think it's a uh, uh, you know, there, there may be other MacArthur Award winners, but he's the only geriatrician in, in recent years, or the only doc who's won it. And he's also a, a special advisor and, and in as many ways has inspired a lot of the work we do at CareCentrics. Welcome, Dr. Coleman. Thank you to you both. I'm eager to get started. Well, good. You know, we were going to have a stable genius on, but we're going to have to settle for a regular, a regular genius here, stable or not. So, Eric, listen, one question. You have this concept I've heard about deprescribing. You know, as the baby boomers are, uh, are getting older, there's this concept. You mentioned deprescribing. That's kind of like when they were deprogrammed from the, uh, from the cults back in the 60s. What, what are we talking about deprescribing? Very good. Well, I cannot say that I came up with this idea, but I do care very deeply about it. I think if we sort of look at the way uh, an older person, for example, um, gets home and uh, looks into their medicine cabinet and you ask the question, you know, how did they get there? Um, there is so much energy on the prescribing side of things, but so little energy sort of reevaluating at particular checkpoints. This is a topic that makes people nervous. Uh, it makes payers nervous because they're afraid if they start nodding their heads affirmatively, it looks like it's being driven by financial gain. It makes specialists nervous because when you send somebody to refer someone to a specialist, they feel like they need to do something. In some cases, there's not an obvious next step, and so a prescription kind of fills that void. Um, and there's a very strange uh, sort of dynamic among prescribers that, um, that it's somehow taboo to take one of their medications away, that you're somehow not respecting their decision. And so what this means is you have add, 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 and very little subtract. And, you know, meanwhile, 12 plus years ago, Joint Commission steps in and starts banging the drum for medication reconciliation. 12 years later, what have we learned? Is the delivery system safer? No one has actually spoken of the fact that we haven't evaluated whether having mandated medication reconciliation makes any sense. And um, that sort of brings us to what I would consider sort of the magic moment of deprescribing, which is um, we keep reconciling the medication list that's in the electronic health record, which often bears very little resemblance to the medication list that the patient actually takes. Um, and so lesson number one is we obviously have to gain trust and cooperation of the patient to actually share the list of what they're taking, which is not as easy as it sounds. And second, this has to be a two-way street. Um, we have to realize that uh, it can't just be professional telling patient what to do. There really needs to be more of a dialogue. And, and we see very little of this anywhere in the delivery system, with the exception of hospice. <laughs> 
So the irony is you finally get someone to take a hard look at your meds when you've enrolled in hospice. So Eric, just just contextually here, I think that the the number of uh, monthly medications that that adults over 65 take doubled between you know, roughly 1990 and 2010. And my sense is that, you know, to, to, to four, and my sense is that number is still going up. What's the danger of too many prescriptions. All, most most prescription, prescriptions are taking by, taken by folks over 65. What's the downside of over-prescribing? Because, I mean, you as a geriatrician are, are dealing with it every day, but not not with all, many of us with aging parents may not realize that based on those wonderful ads on TV where people are leaping through flower-filled fields and they look <laughs> on great dates, what could go wrong with just doubling prescriptions and increasing the number of prescriptions for uh, elderly folks or folks over 65 as, the, as they get older and just add more subscriptions. What, what's, the, what's the problem there? Um, well, we could look at this from a number of perspectives. One, of course, is just the, the patients have to become sort of these little miniature pharmacists where they um, bring all these medications home. And of course, the medications, some are once a day, some are twice a day. There is a cognitive burden that comes with trying to figure out how to take all these medications at one time. So that's sort of one bucket. A closely related bucket is their out-of-pocket expenses on those medications naturally is at the forefront of their thinking. But I think as we get into kind of the whole pharmacologic part of this too, that, that, you know, with each additional drug, the probability of a serious drug-drug interaction uh, really begins to become quite significant. Um, and not only in terms of medications making other medications less effective, but also the potential for side effects. And, and as we also look at adults as they're getting into the age when they begin to experience some cognitive decline, um, some of these uh, side effects really um, play hard on their ability to think clearly, uh, to remain safe. Some of these make them unsteady and predispose them to falls. And falls is a quick uh, rabbit hole that leads them to losing their independence and having to move out of their home. So it's not just merely kind of an academic exercise to try to optimize medications. Medications can really lead to fairly substantial downsides for patients that, that are often not discussed when they're being prescribed. So I think really, really the message is that more medicine really can make us sick. And that's that's why the deprescribing isn't anti-prescribing. It's really right-sizing the prescribing as, as I understand it. Right-sizing is a great way to frame this because otherwise people get very defensive about it. The prescribers, in other words, get very defensive about this. And, and patients really scratch their heads about this too. You know, that doctor seemed like a good doctor. That nurse practitioner seemed like a good nurse practitioner. They wouldn't have prescribed something I didn't a need or could make my other conditions worse. You know, there's there's a couple of really interesting points that you've brought out that I think people may be generally familiar with the idea that uh, seniors maybe have too many prescriptions. But there's a few things. You know, we talk about drug drug interaction. There's another point you've raised about doctor doctor interaction, and uh, you know, one feeling concerned about uh, that they're going to be undermining their colleague if they uh, de-recommend something that was already there. The idea of electronic medical record is not being uh, the place where all of the the truth is, and then then bed reconciliation occurring in the context of the EHR versus what's really actually happening uh, on a day to day basis, and then you raise hospice where the appropriate deprescribing is occurring could also, when uh, someone takes away a prescription and does the deprescribing, it could very well give the patient or a family the sense that uh, maybe they're headed toward hospice or someone's giving up on them. To me, those are all big concepts. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that, 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 that the language that's used around this process needs to not just be, you know, I'm going to cut your meds from 14 to 10, uh, that, that rather that, that it's, a, um, it's a mutual process. You know, if you think about medications from, certainly from the patient standpoint, there's medications that help them with symptoms that they experience every day, like arthritis. Those ones they're very protective of making changes to. Then there's other ones that maybe they're being treated for acute or chronic illness, say diabetes or chronic lung disease, and those sort of have a at least a, a tangible benefit that they can put their finger on. But when we get into things like treating hypertension and cholesterol that don't make them feel any different, that becomes kind of a different ball game and something that we often think about as an afterthought in the deprescribing conversations or supplements. Consumer Reports does a really good job talking about um, the, the challenges around supplements, the, 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 the fact that these are not FDA regulated. And yet, um, I certainly in my professional life have turned cartwheels trying to get patients more affordable medications only to find out that they're spending a considerable sum out of pocket on supplements. And so they care a lot about the supplements too. And often they're out of the out of the eyesight uh, or the electronic health record uh, for the professionals can see. And so this is, you know, the, I think what the point I'm trying to drive at is that, that, that from the patient standpoint, um, they don't view their medications the same. They have different relationships with their medications. And probably from the professional standpoint, just the act of figuring out through a brown bag session or what have you, what medicines are on the table here and beginning to go through them, it's a lengthy process that most clinicians will say, I don't have time to do. And then you say, well, maybe, yeah. They're not, they're not paid for it. I mean, I think one of the interesting things you point out is that, 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 that folks with chronic illness are likely to see more than one doctor, that the EHR, the electronic health record, which is a record, but not necessarily the comprehensive record of even of drugs and would never have included supplements unless it's an, ex, an extraordinarily new one. Um, and that there's a, a role for the pharmacist that's not necessarily the one that the doctor plays. And that from a patient perspective, you can't, I mean, I don't think it's logical to expect that your doctor is going to necessarily be able to take the time or necessarily even have the expertise to understand if you're taking your, those four plus meds that, that, that a lot of folks over 65 are taking necessarily for your age and your condition wouldn't have contraindications even among themselves, let alone creating other problems. And that it is a, that it's almost like after the first, every first prescription, there almost ought to be a warning sign be a, of, 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 of focus of, of, of sort of recheck. So that make sure that there, there is, we're not, you're not recommending deprescribing for everyone, but right prescribing, which is which in many cases may lead to deprescribing for many. Yeah, there there certainly is a, a little bit of a fearlessness that goes into this as well. You know, and you come up through the ranks in the geriatrician training pathway, and you're pretty bold and fearless. You sort of have seen so many patients have medication uh, related problems that you're like, I believe that's that what I'm doing is 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 sort of beneficial. Uh, and I'm going to engage the patient family in this process. But um, so many other clinicians, you know, um, it, it really feels like, well, if something goes wrong, it's on me. And then here you have these electronic health records that will ping you about potential drug-drug interactions. But most of the time, they're on the most trivial things. So naturally, over time, people start to just ignore them out of hand. 
pharmacists are also pretty brave and bold when it comes to this. And we start thinking about annual Medicare wellness visits. This is a role that a pharmacist could play. Um, but of course, a lot of pharmacists out there are employed um, by um, uh, uh, pharmacies and things. And so there's a little bit of maybe discomfort about, is that the role of the pharmacist when you're being paid by the pharmacy that wants to see people on many medications? So there are those little twinges that go into it as well but but it, it's not sort of for the faint um, to go in and start de-prescribing or and coming up with a right prescribing list as we're saying um, creates a fair amount of anxiety among professionals. Hey can we talk about who all these senior citizens are? I remember when I met Johnny he was about 30 and that was my definition of an old person and that was a while ago. Now I know now I'm over 30 so I, I, I think that's you know whoever I am is uh, you know middle-aged at, at the oldest but John you know, who are these seniors? We talk about, you know, someone turns 65, all of a sudden they're, they're a senior. Now there's people living a, a long time. Eric, how, how do you think about kind of these different age bands or, you know, is it all individualized? Is age just a number? Or, you know, do we need to have some new definitions about what it means to be a senior? Yeah, I, I think when we're thinking about population health and planning, that, that uh, just uh, chronologic age is not necessarily uh, terribly advantageous. So, you know, we think about um, people in their uh, children or 20s or 30s or 40s, much more homogenous than people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. There's, um, it, it's very hard um, as people get older to make generalizable statements. Um, as it's, so typically what we say is, you know, let's talk about functional status as a better proxy for, for planning uh, population needs and this demographic imperative. But we've been talking about this you know, baby boomers kind of moving into the ranks, obviously, for 40, 50 years now, um, we've taken very little action as a country in terms of preparing for this. We point out that it's coming, uh, and yet we're really not in a position necessarily um, to, to, to have a, anything resembling a national game plan for what it means to support these people, especially as they begin experiencing challenges that make it hard for them to live in the community. Well, I also think we have a we have a perception problem. I think that you know one of the things that defined age when things like Social Security Act and Medi- let's go back to that in 1930, I believe the average lifespan for a man in the U.S. was about was about 58. Now it's about 78. It's even higher in in some of the the, the other parts of the world where they've got healthcare systems that work. And I think that 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 then that functional status thing becomes. Or, or, or evaluation becomes absolutely critical, but I do think that 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 our that that you know that our our, our and the and our I don't think our society has yet adapted certainly in terminology because uh, over sixty five is still considered you know elderly, and it it really is what functional status and 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 activity and a whole series of other things, but. Eric, for those who kind of aren't, don't live in in, um, in in the world of geriatrics or care, how would you de- describe functional status? Yeah, so um, there are uh, wonderful tools out there, but I think just conceptually, we we talk about the, the ability to meet your daily needs. You know, can you get up in the morning? Uh, can you get out of bed? Uh, can you get to a toilet in time to meet your needs? Can you feed yourself? Um, these are sort of the activities of daily living, and then there's sort of a a next level of function that says, you know, if you needed to, uh, can you get your groceries? Um, can you pay your bills? Um, sort of really what it takes to support independent living. Um, and, you know, by and large, uh, if we look at uh, people, say, 
65 to 74, only about one in 25 struggle with those. If we get to 84, it's more like one in four. And so I don't mean to discount that age is not important. Um, but I'd also point out that three out of four people over 84 are actually able to do most things for themselves. Um, but those who do need our help are finding that, that there's not a lot of options out in the community for that. And then not having those options obviously impacts not, not only on their quality of life, but also on whether they're able to, to participate in their health care, taking their medications, going in for tests, doing all those things that, where they, the interface between living in the community and getting your health care needs met falls into. Hey, you know, another interesting area is technology and what's the impact on on older people. I remember seeing something uh, years ago that was called like my first Sony. And I remember people saying, it could be my last Sony or some other kind of a thing. And sometimes you see these really dumbed down technologies for older people. But it also seems like there's some things out there that could be really useful. Like I think about sometimes about like self-driving cars. You talk about taking away somebody's keys, some of these driver's license, and it's a real loss of independence. But, you know, if they could get into their, uh, into their Tesla and be driven around, it could make, make a big difference. Are these things reality or is, uh, is tech, uh, you know, a bunch of hype for the older folks? Um, there have been different waves of this. There was a really big push in the 90s to create these homes that were smart homes. I don't know if that was the terminology they used, but, you know, where the bed weighs you and the, the refrigerator can automatically order groceries. And, and there were cameras throughout the house and you could really make sure that mom or dad was safe living in the community. Um, and if there is a recurrent theme uh, when it comes to technology and older adults, it's that no one seems to have the gumption to talk to older people first. So um, it turns out older people don't like to have a lot of cameras in their house and having their bed weigh them and have their urine checked and all that. Uh, that, that they found this to be not uh, necessarily compatible with um, how they chose to live. Now, obviously, there is going to be some cohort effects. And as people are around more technology and become more likely to embrace it. But I think if, if there is a rule of thumb over the last 30 years of, of this interface, it's uh, when in doubt, you know, talk to the people that you're creating solutions for and, and maybe even better think about co-designing with them. I, I bump into people at conferences or people reach out to me and they want to share some new technology and I'm not sure if they want my blessing or what they really want, but I'll often say, so So, how many people did you share this with as you were doing the prototyping? And, you know, usually it's, I don't know, I just thought this up in my spare time or, or worse, any conversation that starts off with, you know, I was a... Uh, uh, making a dinner reservation the other day online, it occurred to, uh, 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 stop, stop, stop. No, no, there's nothing in healthcare that's as easy as making a dinner reservation. So let's just put the, I'll take that off the tape. So stepping, stepping back a little bit from that, Eric, what's the, you know, we, we've got this huge age wave of boomers. Um, and do you think the healthcare system is ready with, with the, with a, with a geriatric approach, which is kind of a whole patient approach to kind of care for this 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 looming and increasing wave of boomers yeah i think we can probably learn a lot from the, the last five six years on the um, healthcare sort of becoming more participatory in in the um uh, social determinants of health. Um, I think there have been certainly some stories that are worth applauding out there actions are worth applauding but but by and large the response has been great. We'll screen these people and we'll make referrals to the community. And, and that has value. I'm not taking anything away from it. But at some point, um, it's very easy to overwhelm the very meager community resources that, of course, have always been the stepchild to the big healthcare 
mega institutional resources that we invest. And so I, I, I sometimes pause a little bit about, um, you know, referral to, to community resources are great. So you can imagine a social determinants of health analogous way of screening for older adults who are experiencing um, problems and then making referrals to community agencies. Well, that's certainly why we have area agencies on aging. That's a good use of resources. But as you point out, the, the, the demographic uh, uh, challenges in, embedded in this are, are going to overwhelm what we currently have very quickly. So I, I feel like healthcare needs to step in a little further than just, uh, I'm going to make a referral to this person to get Meals on Wheels. But I've, I've got to think that the, particularly in the time of a pandemic, with so many people out of work, that just thinking about hunger as a, an input for seniors and potentially creating health risk is still something could easily be overwhelmed with, I think it was 7 million people came off of benefits last month. You know, I, I, I've got to think that, that, that as we go from social determinants to social necessities or, or, or social determinants to personal necessities, that we've got gaps um, on, on, for, for, for those referrals to really, if, if, we're, if we're truly going to help, help, help uh, see, uh, seniors or frankly all of us heal at a time when so many people are hungry. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't have couldn't have said it better than you did, John. And and I I think what you know the, what your point illustrates is that that, that you know it, it's one thing to sort of talking about you know older adults who need access to to a very expensive and um, you know the cutting edge of technology in healthcare, but but as you've described, a lot of these folks really need some of the basics and, and we're not doing very well covering those basics. I, I think that the, the underlying strategy that perhaps the, some federal policymakers are is that if we can align some of these, you know, community organizations that don't have a very strong voice and don't necessarily command the same respect as, you know, the hospitals and health systems and the, and the large uh, Medicare Advantage programs, then, then maybe, you know, that, that sort of the all boats will rise. Um, but but there are you know some sort of questions about scope and questions about attention span. Healthcare wants to just keep keep going after the next shiny object, and and whereas this is kind of day in day out, slug it out, making sure people are uh, have basic needs met. It, it's not as sexy. It's not great for shareholder meetings. You know, it's it, there are some inherent conflicts. Well, I, I think one of the things I love about you, Eric, is you always remind us how important the unsexy essentials are. To driving the sexy results in healthcare, and uh, you know, you, I'm always reminded of the unsexy John whenever I speak with you or I see I see your photo. But you know, I do like the I do like the back to basics approach, and uh, I think the idea of going you know back to the acoustics and unplugging the computer and uh, printing up a few deep prescription pads that those are going to be my my takeaways from uh, from today's care talk. So I think before we uh, before <laughs> before we get under anyone's skin any further, I'm just going to say. Uh, that's going to be it for this edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Centrics. Thanks for listening.